David, great to see you. And Brian, wonderful to have you on the Acquired Limited Partner Show. Thanks for having me. This could not be better timing with Uber set to price and start trading next week to have a have an OG uh, person on here <laughs> telling us about how the magic all uh, all happened. Yeah, it was, a, it was a wild ride. So happy to be on <laughs> chat through it. Uh, one that continues. Brian uh, is a good friend, and uh, we're super excited to have him here on the LP show. He had a front row seat at Uber through a lot of the evolution. You were one of the first hundred or so employees. I think you joined right after the Series B. Is that right? That's correct. It was summer of uh, 2012, and I think we were just at 100. Wow. Crazy. And you joined right out of undergrad. Right out of undergrad. Right out of undergrad. And so you started in the SF ops team. Then you moved over. You started the product ops group at Uber. Then you moved fully into product, and you ran uh, Uberpool and shared rides for, for a couple of years. So... We'll get into all of that, but now Brian is running a product group at Opendoor, which is another tech eats the real world company, which we'll also talk about, but uh, super pumped to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here and talk uh, Uber, Opendoor, and whatever else we delve into. <laughs> we, we thought Brian would be a particularly awesome guest because on the main show, we talk about exits and sort of the, we touch in, in retrospect on the narrative of the stories along the way, but often the, the sausage is actually much more complex than I think a clean narrative would tell. And so um, Brian's a perfect candidate for the LP show to talk a lot about the more detail-oriented intricacies of how these uh, these great companies were actually built. And I got to say, Brian, you sure can pick them. I mean, Uber right out of college at 100 people and now open door um it's a it's a pretty good track record yeah i'd rather rather be lucky than good any day <laughs> <laughs> so i well i got asked to start so you had just graduated from stanford undergrad people had heard about uber but how did you get a job at uber right out of undergrad you know at like series b stage yeah so so i first actually heard about uber in 2011 or maybe it was late 2010 when it was still called the uber cab and i was actually in the uh Sounds sounds pretty nerdy, but I was in the Stanford Venture Capital Club, which basically meant uh, we did some. There were people some, at Stanford some, interested in venture capital. Uh, a couple, and they all joined a small, tiny club <laughs> of five people. Um, and basically, what that meant is we we uh, worked with VC firms on sort of a. a per project basis and basically the deal was we did some diligence to provide our thoughts and they provided some mentorship on on how VC world works and so we actually were doing a project on these new age taxi apps mm. um, and we're looking at taxi magic taxi yeah. magic yeah. Uh, halo out of out of London cabulous which became flywheel and uh, Ubercab. That was my first introduction. I actually recently got reminded that at the end of the project, and I didn't remember this, we actually recommended uh, uh, Uber as the winner. So um, <laughs> but I, a fortunate guest back then too. But how I really got there was a buddy of mine uh, who I'd worked with at Stanford had joined a year before me on the ops team and basically called me up as I was graduating and said, hey, we're looking for smart, hardworking people. Are you interested? Went through the process. Actually, did my final interview on July fourth, which is maybe <laughs> a little bit of a precursor to uh, some, some weekends and holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was off to the races. Wow! Wow! So you joined on the SF Ops team. What were you doing for that first year or two when you joined? So, so when I first joined, Uber was well, still a little bit to this day, but but particularly back then, Uber was highly distributed as an operating model. And so there was 
very little centralization, no centralized growth team, no centralized marketing team, no centralized funnel team, no centralized onboarding team, no centralized pricing team. And how many markets what was Uber in at this point? Uh, maybe like, eight, ten, something yeah, like 10 that. So. It, uh, it was kind of New York, Boston, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, Paris. There would be a team of four or something deployed into a city and they would handle sort of all of that stuff within the small group. Yeah, so so the uh, the atomic unit of a city was basically what we called a operations and logistics manager, a marketing manager, which was basically supply side, demand side, and then a general manager. And like I said, everything was really decentralized. The, there was a small product and engineering team in San Francisco um, and then a team of data scientists who were working on Surge. Outside of that... Um, it was all pushed out into the cities. Yeah, everywhere. exactly. Cool. Yeah, so um, how you priced, how you onboarded, who you onboarded, quality of, of drivers, local marketing stunts, all of that. And so it was kind of like a running a bunch of uh, small businesses that yeah, happened and, to share a, And this an is app. what's super cool. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, like Uber basically invented this model of all of that, like a huge bulk of what constitutes a tech company living within quote unquote ops distributed in the real world in cities like how how did that start yeah I, th- I think it was always from the very early days travis really deeply believed in this decentralized city model and i think to be clear over time breaks is the wrong word but um mm-hmm. you you start to realize uh, that there are some efficiencies of centralizing <laughs> some of these functions um and product and engineering as it catches up uh, to how fast ops can move when you're young sort of brings a, some more firepower and horsepower to growth and marketing, onboarding and funnel optimization and process standardization and, and, and all of that stuff. But I think when you're young and early, especially in a, in a company like Uber, where every city kind of has some of its own dynamics, you get the, this um, Petri dish effect mm-hmm. where basically every city gets to run a bunch of experiments and the mm-hmm. whole company learns uh, a lot faster than you could in a centralized world. What are some frameworks for making sure that you actually spread those learnings throughout the company? Because I could imagine it'd be easy to just keep them in the little field office in Seattle in a corner, you know, and... And, and, and this was the, you know, famously Uber had the playbook, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> what, tell us about the playbook. <laughs> yeah. So, so Uber was always, always really good at having a culture of, of playbooking. And it was... Um, celebrated and i think that celebration was really important which is if you did something really cool in your city whether that's a new excel spreadsheet or a new process or a new stunt or whatever like that's cool it's way cooler if you then get on the all hands call talk about it and Mm. say here i'm going to share out exactly how it worked it would be awesome if other cities followed suit and so celebrating those wins was great in the early days as the company got bigger there was uh, this team uh called the pro team which was centralized in in san francisco i think it stood for process resource optimization or something (laughs) i don't know something not awesome (laughs) um and uh part of that team's job was exactly this playbooking process. Mm. It was being super in touch with every local city team, Mm -hmm. what was the sort of cutting-edge innovation, and then being responsible for playbooking that and sharing best practices. And did... Where did this live? Like, was there a massive Google Doc? Like, (laughs) Um, So it was... (laughs) 
what's funny is, is, is yes, Uber was very good at playbooking, very good at sharing best practices. I would say not particularly good at uh, the organization of those best <laughs> practices. So, 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 yeah, it was a collection of Google Docs and spreadsheets and other PowerPoints and whatever that just got huh. passed around from, from, from cool. person to person. There was a knowledge base over mm-hmm. time, um, but knowledge bases are, are uh, famously difficult yeah. to keep up to date <laughs> um, and and difficult to manage. I can't imagine um, the Uber culture in those days being too receptive to like SharePoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For each of these city teams in those days, like what was the directive from San Francisco from on high? Like was it each city was given like a North Star of just like maximize rides and that was then go to town or like what Yeah, <laughs> what were the goals? Grow. Grow, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, get as many people on the platform as possible. There were some beautiful... Uh, obviously network effects, local network effects in the business, but also uh, viral effects in the, in terms of people sharing and talking about it. And, and once people try it, um, well, I guess that's the, more so and more over time. Was Uber HQ saying maximize number of, of participants, like riders and drivers, or number of rides, like or, or just like it was, maximize everything? It, it, I mean, <laughs> yes, it was, it was maximize everything yeah. yesterday. Um, <laughs> but it was more about getting more new people on the mm-hmm. platform. Because um, in the early and, days, that's the most, you know, obviously retention and repeat is super important always and in the long term and in the in the very early days especially with competition like signing up more people gives you that head start yeah exactly and and i guess kind of the beauty of having you know terrific product market fit like uber does is you can defer some of those hard thinking around retention because it's like, yes, we know once people try this, they like it, they come back, they use it again. So how much they use it again, can we juice a little bit more from their usage? Sure. But like, let's just get as many people trying this as as, as possible. So, so put another way, you can just totally optimize your metrics around new people joining the platform and then just sort of trust that all the down funnel effects will happen because of the product market fit. Yeah, I, I, I would say uh, that's true. The second part that we were super, super careful of, and and Uber still has to be super, super careful of, is running a marketplace and the dynamics of Mm -hmm. supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So it's it's grow, 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 but grow in lockstep. Um, If you bring on way, 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 way too many riders, they open the app and, and they get what in the early days... I don't think this really happens anymore. But in the early days, what we called an unfulfilled, mm. um, which basically meant you opened the app and you saw no cars available. Right, I remember that. Yeah, and that's that's the awful experience, right? Because the promise is you don't need to call a taxi, you don't need to drive, you can go out to dinner. And then if you go out to dinner and you're at dinner and you open the app and it says, sorry, no cars available, right, we just broke our promise. Right. Um, and so... You know, in the early days, you create those experiences. I don't want to say all the time, like, but they happen, yeah. right? Um, and 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 same thing with a twelve-minute ETA, a nine-minute ETA. People and get so, frustrated, and totally. Then that's you know, worse. They never come back. Somewhere in between, they jump to your competitors, and you totally, know, yeah. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2 Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. 
Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search guidance or market outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. One thing that's always been in my mind is in Uber particularly, is it harder to acquire and retain the supply side or the demand side? And is that the same market to market or is it always sort of in flux and it could be either in either market? It's changed over time, but if you really pressured me and said today, like pick a side, it's definitely the supply side. The company from a demand side has crazy product market fit, and there's this beautiful flywheel where the more riders you have, uh, the more demand obviously there is, and the more demand there is, uh, the 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 more um, drivers drive drive on your drive on your platform, and the shorter the ETAs means the 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 less wasted downtime and so that's kind of the the local flywheel um but that said i'm sure like especially in the early days that might be true in aggregate but that's not true at any given moment of the day right like in i remember in the afternoons right like in the early days probably weren't that many people using uber at 3 p.m or whatever like yeah so you probably had supply side excess in the marketplace yeah so so in the early days especially when it was like just uber black or a fully licensed uber x which uber x when it launched wasn't originally right, was, peer-to-peer was peer. um <laughs> covered on the lift episode and yeah. we'll cover again <laughs> yes. on the uber ipo episode but yeah back in those days we actually oftentimes would uh slow down or meter or stop the what we call driver onboarding mm. because we were waiting for demand to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There were totally times when it was like, hey, we had a lot of partners who wanted to put another car on the system. A lot mm-hmm. of the uh, Uber Black partners there owned multiple cars right, right, and right. ran you know limo businesses on on Uber. So yeah, it was, it was really about 
metering that supply and, and making sure the marketplace metrics around unfulfilled driver earnings per hour, ETAs um, were healthy. So even in the early days, there was a centralized team of data scientists that were managing the marketplace, but focused purely on surge. Is that kind of how that started? The marketplace team started? Yeah, exactly. So the early directive was dynamic pricing or surge. Yeah. Uh, and then I assume, like now, that's it manages everything, you know, across yeah. the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, the 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 first step for for Uber, I mean, there there are basically two things you need: you need an app, uh, you need a rider app and a driver app, and you need a dispatching system, mm-hmm. right? So, so the team was also obviously responsible for for taking care of that. But in terms of the uh, uh, data science and and heavy data lifting in the early days, it was all about surge. All surge. Yeah, and now obviously it's much, much, much more complex with yep. a much more complex dispatching system and marketplace metrics and all of that centralized and driven by uh, product and engineering. While you're still working in ops in San Francisco, what is the product team look like? Are you guys in this like on the same floor in the same <laughs> office? Like, <laughs> yeah. So the first office I worked in um, was uh, 800 Market, and and everyone was in one floor, and and everyone in SF could fit in one conference room for our our, <laughs> our weekly all hands. Um, yeah, that's great. Uber's what like eighteen thousand ish people now, or something I don't like know. that. Yeah, so <laughs> s- something in the t- tens of thousands. Yeah. That's crazy to think through. The product and engineering team was uh, focused on basically reliability of the apps Mm -hmm. um, and the dispatching system as well as continuing to, to, to pump out new features. Obviously, we, we look at Uber today, and the app is, is actually still relatively simple, but if you go look at a screenshot from 2011, 2012, 2013, oh, yeah. it's like single button, kind of large icons. Hey, it got it's the job Jump done. around. Hey, it yeah. got the job done. It yeah. totally got the job done. But the product and engineering time at that time was was basically, one, keep up with growth. Yep. To from a scalability perspective, to add more and more features, you know, but back in the day when it first launched, there was one car type. Yeah, so okay, right, right, now right, how do you type. add uh, there was SUVs? No, there was like there was a map where you drop pins, but there was no mapping system for Uber, right? Totally. Like once once a ride started, you know, it was like okay, driver, <laughs> figure out how to get there. To- right? to- <laughs> to- totally, and 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 like if you if you dig in, there there are obviously a lot of, of 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 parts of it. Yeah, there's the mapping, the routing, the pin drop, the driver side, the driver pickup, the receipt you get after it, mm-hmm. uh, the support elements of what happens if something went wrong. Uh, which never happens. Right? Which never <laughs> happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a pretty complex life cycle there. Even on a per ride basis, it's like a gigantic state machine that you can optimize every single sort of moment of that experience. And it, it, it's still, I think it's something where when these new ride sharing services launch and try and compete just in one market or there's ride sharing aggregators or people that try and plug into that system, on the surface, it seems so simple that you order a ride and it comes, but there's so many states that need to be optimized along the way to actually deliver on the experience that Uber has, Uber and Lyft have, have come to make people expect today, that it's actually a very complex piece of machinery to create that really simple experience. Yeah, I, I I think that's totally right, and and I think you know starting a ride sharing business today would be super challenging from both the the, the technology perspective, but also it would just be very hard from a network effects mm-hmm. perspective to spin up a new Uber or Lyft um, and try and compete in the market. Obviously, there are ones that have different angles um, and 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 carved out different niches, and 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 that can totally work and and, and make sense. Whether it's I mean, you know, for kids even, like, or for close whatever. to viable one in the U.S. was Juno in New York. 
work, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, and 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 Juno came in obviously with a, with a lot of funding in 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 New York, and frankly, I don't really know how it's how it's going, but clearly they haven't rolled out nationally yeah. and yeah. Uh, become like a really bad. Yeah, you still talk cool. about Uber and Lyft. Yeah, basically, you've got the product team in San Francisco that's trying to make sure the button still works. You know, every time people push it, then you've got all this uh, everything else happening in the ops teams in the cities. At some point, you know, it sounds like you saw, like, as you said, that is great in the early days, doesn't scale super well. So you you then started the product ops group. Like, what what yeah. was the goal of that group? So so that was after uh, the the pro team, as we talked about, had had started, and Uber at this point had gotten pretty big. I, I don't remember the exact size, but was was definitely quite international, maybe a hundred or so cities. A lot more had been centralized. Um, there were a lot more product and engineering resources that had built out a lot more scalable uh, systems, optimized funnels. We had safety teams and rider experience teams and growth teams and uh, kind of the, the, the more standard uh, product and engineering teams. But you still had this massively distributed ops org all over the world running experiments and doing their thing and having local market nuances and needs and, and, and whatever. And basically... Over time, um, what developed was sort of a bi-directional um, communication gap where we were building all of our product from San Francisco for, for the rest of the world. And the local nuances, insights, feedback, et cetera, from the people operating the business every day in those cities weren't being effectively translated back to San Francisco. And then once a product had been built, rolling it out internationally, training the right people, getting the right buy-in, et cetera, um, was, was also a challenge. Yeah, what's an example of one of those local nuances that, that would have to get translated into the product that wouldn't be obvious if you were just a product manager or engineer working back in San Francisco? I remember Neil Camaretti telling me about cash in India. Yeah, <laughs> that's, so, 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 that, that, that's actually the one I was going to bring up. Uh, how important cash is, is is certainly one. Certain safety features in, in different countries would be another. Um, I think a third, which is, is less, well, maybe more obvious, maybe less obvious, but more intricate over time, is how different road structures can play into the dynamics of, mm-hmm. of, of Uber um, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, and this was more important, I think, probably in the Uber pool days when crossing the street in San Francisco isn't great, but it's not the end of the world. Crossing the street in China is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's like 12 lanes and yeah. a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And so you have wow. to be really thoughtful. You have to really <laughs> be really thoughtful about uh, side of street and the matches you make. Because yeah, suddenly that's a, a factor in the model that is incredibly important instead of relatively dismissed. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, lo- a lot of that. And, and frankly, also just understanding what's important for different stages of different markets. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be easy if you're a new product or engineering hire in San Francisco in 2015 to forget what it's like when there are 12 cars on the road. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's certain, there were cities at that point that that was the. But there were cities yeah. that 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 was the case. Yeah. Right, and they were still in that early early stage growth phase, mm-hmm. um, and and their needs were a little bit different. And and you start building the group. Who are the people you're recruiting into this group? And like, what were all the different roles? I mean, this yeah. is like. Uh, you're like the ultimate translator of you know actual languages and like you know yes. metaphorical languages here. <laughs> <laughs> so so Uber at the time had a well actually still to this day had a model for product and engineering um, that it called platforms and programs, 
which is basically platforms are collections of engineers who build products for for other engineers and and, and programs are what you would consider your more traditional two pizza mm-hmm. uh, product team. Mm-hmm. Um, call it five to ten engineers, a PM, a designer, uh, maybe a data scientist, kind of depending on, on on the team mission and need. And so the original model for product ops or the vision was to have one product ops per program team. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in the early days, product ops spanned many many program teams. I believed it was important, and, and we as a company believed it was important that um, as much as possible, those people actually have operating experience within Uber. So all of the early product ops, and I think all of the product ops still to this day, are internal transfers from mm-hmm. people who have actually been in, in market. In market. So mo- more important to have been on the ops side than to have been on the product side before coming into yeah c- correct and and yeah I, I think it was really important that you both had the relationships with people uh, in in the cities as well as the expertise of actually understanding how the business runs day in and day out. You mentioned two pizza teams, uh, <laughs> which any acquired listener and, and us too is you know going to immediately think of Amazon. One of the reasons we wanted to do this with you is like it's fair to say Uber really invented all of this way of like bringing tech and ops and product into the real world. But who did you guys look to? Like were there obviously there's a lot of Amazon DNA in Uber with Jeff Holden, you know, on down. Were there places like that you were like, okay, this is like sort of a model we can follow and tweak or or were you inventing whole cloth? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if there was like a model per se that that we were looking at. Obviously Jeff brought a lot of artifacts on the product side. And Jeff Holden had Jeff been Holden, uh, yeah. had been uh SVP of product, I think, at Amazon. Yeah, days, and then gone to Groupon, and and then came to yeah. So he had been at Amazon for a long time, maybe ten or fifteen years, and then started his own company that got bought by Groupon, and then was CPO at Groupon, and then came over to Uber. He brought a lot of stuff, including sort of the two pizza team program model, uh, writing narratives for 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 each team, and sort of that six page which Uber adapted over time, pre meeting narrative mm-hmm. type thing for a product team. And did you guys do the whole Amazon pre-meeting narrative, sit down, read the narrative before discussing? <laughs> uh, you guys I, didn't have time to do yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say, say not not nearly. I, I've never obviously worked at Amazon, but it sounds like not nearly as diligently as, as, as they do it. I think it was more about at planning time, making sure that every team had an enduring mission and a narrative that laddered up to that mission. Mm-hmm. And Jeff was pretty good and thoughtful about pushing that through um, when, when he came on. So, David, as you say, you know, Uber was really a pioneer here. Uh, for Brian, have you seen other people sort of adopt this org structure and, and put this product ops group between product and operations? And who does this well? And, um, you know, what, what does it look like today versus when you were first sort of starting it five years ago? When we were first setting out to do it, I actually spoke to a couple people at uh, Google who kind of had something similar-ish uh, between sales and, 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 mm-hmm. and product and engineering. But but obviously the business was much less tangible, real world yeah. focused. I recently got pointed to a Quora post where it seems <laughs> like people are now talking about this, and and more and more of these companies uh, that have this real world online offline component are adopting that model, including frankly Open Door, which also obviously has a very even more physical, tangible, real-world component and a city-by-city uh, structure. So Open Door also has been been building up product ops uh, over the last six, six, nine months. And so I think we are starting to see 
uh, more and more companies adopt it. I haven't really done my homework of, of <laughs> circling back and saying, you know, who, who's particularly done it well. Um, but I know it continues to be a strong emphasis uh, at, at Uber. There's this amazing Ben Evans talk uh, from Andreessen Horowitz that came out uh, maybe six, nine months ago, where he talks about how generation one of the internet was quote unquote easy because you were just moving bits around and moving information around. And now we're actually into the hard part where most of those businesses have been relatively conquered. I mean, information is is free to move around the internet and uh, we all know there's plenty available, but now we're into the hard businesses of, you know, moving lots of atoms around and actually doing the, the you know, there's a much greater part of GDP that can be captured if you're actually in the business of things with atoms and things in the physical world. And it's interesting to think about how org structures broadly need to change in this world where internet businesses are now also real world businesses in the, you know, dramatic amount of cases especially for the future big ones. Yeah, I, I think Uber always thought about it as as a twin turbine plane. And, you know, maybe for a short period of time, you could fly on one engine. But if you want to operate at full efficiency, you need both engines working in tandem mm-hmm. um, and, and, and working effectively together. And I, and I do think, transparently, it also kind of depends at different stages of a company's life cycle where a lot of the benefit comes from. So, so when Uber was super young... Obviously, it's much harder and longer to hire and build good software Mm -hmm. uh, than it is to change process or just scrappily do things. And so a lot of the early benefit um, for those first few years of Uber was all about ops hustle and yeah. that getting was, that was the done. engine that was you know providing the yeah thrust, exactly right? like, exactly the other one was destabilizing <laughs> exactly exactly it was it was it was trying to. Yeah, uh, EPD was all about scale and keeping up and, and 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 shipping features when possible, but but Ops was just sprinting sprinting ahead. And then over time, obviously, as you build better and better products, more insights, uh, more engineering capabilities, what happened was you know some some of the work being done in in city teams no longer made sense to do on a local level. Not everyone had to reinvent the marketing email, mm-hmm, right? That mm-hmm. that didn't make sense anymore. <laughs> this is. Perfect transition to pool and shared reds where like now product is the one that's like accelerating the thrust forward. Before we get there, though, I want to we're going to cover all this on the main show on on the Uber episode. But I got to since you're here, you you mentioned when you started product ops, Uber was now in hundreds of cities around the world. Now, was was there a moment at Uber like nobody else anywhere, (laughs) no no other ride sharing company kind of anywhere decided we're going to go global was that a debate within Uber? Like, what was the moment where you guys were like, yep, we're going global? Like, yeah. If it was a debate, it was a debate that happened before I arrived because by the time I arrived, Paris had launched. Mm. And 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 some of the inspiration for, for, for Uber, as, as the story goes, is, is is from Paris. So I think yep. Paris was the second or third city yep. that, I think that New York Uber was launched. The second, and, yeah, and I think Paris was right after that. Uber was international pretty early on. Obviously, it had a continued focus and, and emphasis to, to, to grow internationally, enter more geographies, enter more countries. Um, and I think that was always part of the strategy. So never never a debate yeah. when when i was there it was yes we need to be in india like yes yeah. we need to be in europe huh. yes we need to be in latin america of course it's just like why didn't any other ride sharing companies do that like 
I mean, it's really hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> like you, you, you have to build. A, you have to hire. Yeah. Uh, and and all those markets. B, you have to make sure your your technology scale. C, you have to think about internationalization and translating your app to, yeah. to all different languages and 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 left Meanwhile, to right. Meanwhile, everybody's hair left. is still on fire. So, you know, exactly. In the US, so like, e- yeah. Exactly. Um, and there are local dynamics and regulations and nuances uh, and yeah. in, in every market and and so it's it's hard yeah. <laughs> um and you know i think there's value in acknowledging i mean i don't want to say it was a distraction i think it was deeply important to to, to uber so it was core to, to the strategy but there is value sometimes in saying no we're going to focus on the u.s first and then we'll figure out international obviously uber took, took a different approach but it, it's a hard one right we fought yeah. a a, a battle in China for a <laughs> yeah. long time and, yeah. and the company was heavily focused on China, heavily focused on India. It's just hard for a company to be focused yeah, on, on so all, many yeah. different things at, at, at once. So I think that's why a lot of other companies didn't didn't, didn't, didn't go faster. But what you saw, obviously, is local competitors crop up all over, Didi mm-hmm. in China, Ola in India, Grab yep. in, in Southeast, Southeast Asia. Asia. So I think that's how kind of the model spread. Yeah, And Uber always thought it was deeply important to which I think is, is is the right strategy to go compete early on in those markets, like knowing that there are going to be local competitors mm-hmm. that that crop up. I think it would be hard if Uber right. had just if you're not US. there in the beginning, then you're not even in the game. Yeah, yeah. it would yeah. be hard if it, if Uber had just in yes to now yeah. go to. Was, India. was there a mantra too around we should go and do the hardest ones first because then the other ones will be easy, or was it more around like we're going to get out competed there if if we don't go now? Yeah, I think it was more about just we should do all of the biggest ones yesterday, um, and so it was, yeah. it was it was it was more about like oh it's a big city yeah we should be there yeah um, like oh it, it it's a big city and and we can operate there right there so so the part of the model we didn't talk about is uh, in the early days uh, Uber had a pretty. Sh- uh, strong and large uh, launch team. Mm-hmm. And basically that person would parachute into a market, make sure we can operate there, do the, the, the checks, hire the initial team and launch the city and then go to the next one. Um, and so those launchers would just travel from pretty much like biggest yeah. city to biggest city. <laughs> well, it's funny. We, I want to move on to product, yeah. but we will yeah, cover yeah. this in the Uber IPO episode. Everybody forgets Uber followed the rules. Like, yeah. <laughs> Uber was kind of the only company that actually followed the rules, despite you know what people thought about it. So yeah. we'll cover all that on the cool. main episode. Okay, uh, pool. Yes, How did pool, pool come about. <laughs> um, so, so if you, if you look at uh, kind of the narrative arc uh, of Uber on the rider side over time, it's about more affordable and more accessible options. Um, so obviously, the company started with with Uber Black, and it was a premium product and, and, and fairly pricey, and then a licensed UberX product, and, and that was a little bit more expensive than Taxi. Then we actually launched a Taxi product, and then That's UberX great. got cheaper over time as it got more efficient and peer-to-peer stuff. And now, it, obviously, it's significantly cheaper than than a taxi, but at some point you have a, a, a limit on, on on where the pricing of, of, of UberX could go. Um, and obviously this was before, which we can talk to, upfront pricing, which mm-hmm. is what, what you see in the app, so still yep. per, per mile, per minute, et cetera. Yep. And so I was like, okay, what's that next wave of innovation? The next kind of UberX to Uber Black, what's the... the Yep. Blank to, yep. to, to Uber X. Um, I would say the X to Uber X, but that, that doesn't work so well. <laughs> Uber XX is um, probably not. A yeah, good exactly. Brand. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that that doesn't work. Um, and and so obviously carpooling's been around for for a long time. Uber didn't invent carpooling. Lyft didn't invent carpooling, but it's hard to coordinate, right? And basically, we realized, hey, we have all these trips mm-hmm. that 
start in similar places and end in similar places at similar times, right? There are natural commuting patterns. There are mm-hmm. natural transportation patterns of a city. Um, we can actually do this carpooling thing pretty well at scale. Um, and if we do, we can actually unlock a step function change in the affordability and accessibility of, of, of Uber. So that was kind of the initial genesis. And then it was, okay, let's go make it happen. Yeah. Wow. You guys knew from the beginning, like, this could be huge. Like, this is a big initiative. How did you start? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was actually a small small initiative. I, 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 like, <laughs> well, right, yeah. it's, still, it's still in the earliest days was still the two pizza team model where the initial team that, that launched the first product, I think was like eight or nine people. And so it wasn't crazy large, like, you know, you hear these stories orienting the whole company around a thing. It, it wasn't like that. Um, it was like, yeah, this is a thing that, that we want to try. And obviously carpooling can, can, can be big, but we didn't actually know mm-hmm. how people would react, right? Mm-hmm. Uber has this like amazingly simple, easy value prop. You push a button and you get a car and you get that car relatively quickly and it takes you to your destination now it's like you push a button you might get matched with someone else you you don't exactly know how long it's going to take like we didn't really know how much to charge it's a dice (laughs) roll like i i uh, I remember in the early days of uber pool frankly before all the kinks were worked out and uh, uh sometimes you could have a pretty good probability of getting a ride without another rider joining. And I remember being at like the Seattle airport and it'd be $35 for an Uber X or it'd be like $11 for an Uber pool. And like, sometimes I would get it all alone. And I remember yeah. like feeling this rush of adrenaline when I'd be like, Uber pool, do it. Yeah, to- to- <laughs> totally, totally. And it was this like super weird dynamic back then where you're like, stoked when you don't get matched <laughs> but like that's but what our incentive is to try and match you is yeah. like kind of weird yeah. you know <laughs> um so so yeah i mean we, we we had no no real idea how riders would react um how did you how did you position it to drivers i mean imagine that was even trickier yeah yeah to- totally and 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 frankly i think it was uh, something we we underinvested on or early on back to the conversation about Who's who's the real customer, the rider, the the driver side, and which side is trickier to build? So I, th- I think it was an underinvestment back then, but the positioning was, which is true, is more rides, less downtime, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you can have these longer trips where you pick up someone, you pick up someone else, you drop someone off, you pick up someone, you know, and that means more paid time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and when wasted downtime is, gets is like it is in, you know, I've seen many cities, certainly here in San Francisco, you know, pool is like, there's no question if you do a pool that you're getting like a full car load. And, um, you know, I imagine drivers make more money. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I took a pool here and, it was a perfect example where, you know, collectively the trip was, you know, 40 minutes or whatever, which was maybe 15 minutes longer than 10 minutes longer than it, than it would have been on an X. And, and that was great for him. And then he got another match while I was in the car. And, and so, yeah, he, he, he keeps driving and, and um, yeah, that, that was kind of the, the initial pitch, but, but I think there, there's an acknowledgement that also the tricky part as the driver or the trickiest part as a driver for, for Uber is pickups and drop-offs and mm-hmm. you are adding more of those as yeah, well. Yeah, it's more complexity. Tell us about Open Door. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, uh, yeah. So, Great. So, oh, so you had this amazing, so you, so you, you know, from ops to product ops yep. to product at Uber, you know, the yep. company, the pioneers, real world. Yep. So then you're like, you know, you take some time off yep. and then you're like, all right, I didn't get real world enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to spend 
billions of dollars on physical assets. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. You know, Uber is operationally complex for sure. <laughs> and transportation is complex and hard. But Open Door from a complexity standpoint is, is almost an order of magnitude more, more, more challenging, right? Buying and selling a home it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. You know, it, it, there are a lot of steps. There's a lot of antiquated process. It's hard when um, it's the most important financial transaction of your life and you are a hundred percent solely focused on it. Totally. I can only imagine doing it at scale. Is totally. Like, you know. Yeah, ex- exactly. And, and I think there's some other interesting distinctions between Uber and open door in terms of how you build product. Obviously Uber is relatively um, low dollar value, high frequency transaction and buying and selling a home is the most expensive and important financial transaction of your life and you do it maybe once every decade so you have to build product in a very different way um at uber it was very easy to be like oh let's just like build it as as quickly as possible put it together throw out an a b test and see what happens people don't like it Great with that goes in the B side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can't do that. Uh, or we iterate work. through it. It, yeah. it doesn't work as well yeah. when you have you know lower end and it takes a while to sell to buy and sell a home. You just have to be a little bit more thoughtful about the products you're building and have a little bit more conviction around those things because it's uh, you can't just A/B test um, through. So stuff. what are the what do the ops and product teams look like at at Open Door? You know, versus versus Uber. Then the makeup is relatively similar in terms of uh, the product and engineering teams and those being in San Francisco. Added challenge uh, today for for Open Door is unlike Uber, Open Door doesn't operate in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't all buy and sell homes twice a day. <laughs> well, Open Door does. Uh, every individual doesn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, and, and San Francisco is probably like the last market you will would ever <laughs> enter because the dynamics are so yeah. uh, antithetical to open door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I- I- exactly. Yeah, there, there are a lot uh, more easier markets out there. But I think in terms of having that twin turbine engine and having to have both operational excellence as well as uh, product and engineering and, and in order to be able to operate efficiently and operate the business as it should be able to have those two in tandem, I think that tenant still holds true, mm-hmm. right? And being able to get the local insights from people operating the business day in and day out, um, but also have bring the product and engineering uh, resources and process and scalability and thoughtfulness and having those two work together is what gets you the best outcome. So I think that element is still true. It just happens to be the transaction is longer mm-hmm. and, and and harder and more complex. So you're running product group. Have you implemented product ops at, at, at Open Door too? <laughs> yeah. So I, I run a group that we call real estate operations. But in terms of product ops, we have different groups, seller, buyer, pricing. They all have product ops uh, sprinkled throughout. It's, it's not obviously as uh, mature as Uber eventually got. But yeah, it's still the same tenant of how do we make sure to bridge that gap between mm-hmm. a growing number of cities and a centralized EPD team. I mean, I would imagine like even just pricing as an example, right? Like pricing algorithms and engineering and data science around that is a core, core <laughs> capability of Open Door. Having the real world connection to each market and what's actually going on there is like super important. To- to- <laughs> There's to- only so much you can do with an MLS feed, right? Like- <laughs> yeah, that's where it becomes really important to build that really strong muscle that Uber uh, eventually did well about what is local operations really good at and what is 
uh, centralized EPD really good at? And how do we make those two uh, hold hands and, and work together really effectively to drive the best outcomes for customers? Awesome. Awesome. Well, with that, Brian, as we wrap here, where can listeners find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter under my name, Brian Tolkien. That's probably the best place to find me. If if listeners are curious about Open Door and live in a market, what, what markets do you operate? Well, probably too many to list. Yeah. But what's the best way to uh, get on the platform? Yeah. So feel free, obviously, to check out the website, opendoor.com. You can also download the app um, if you're a buyer looking to browse homes in, in your area. And if, if you're interested in potentially selling your home, yeah, go, go on the website. And currently, what's the from. I'm thinking about selling my home. I'm curious about like how, how quickly can I get my home sold to Open Door? It's actually really fast and, and often more dependent on how quickly you, you would you like to go. move. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you, if you go through the process, you fill out some questions, um, and then you can get an offer on your home really quickly within, within a day. And then from there, it's, it's you know, how quickly do you want to accept or think about it or, or kind of what's your, what's your process looking like. But yeah, the initial step to get a value of your home and get an offer is actually really, really uh, fast and easy. So yeah, if you're thinking of selling your home, uh, check it out. Yeah, cool. It's so cool. I mean, having um, participated a couple times in this market, like that is so different <laughs> from a traditional experience. Yeah. And, and I think it's actually really cool to bring the same tenets of, of simplicity and ease and convenience to buying and selling a home, which I, I don't think most people who have gone through the process would ever describe as simple, easy, or convenient. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I, and, I, and I wildly understood the messiness of it before going through it. We guys to do is, is super interesting. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I can't thank you enough. Listeners, we will talk to you next time, likely on the Uber IPO on the main show. Indeed. All right, have a good one. Cheers. <laughs>